So jumping back into our introduction, would you rather slave away day after day over the stove and oven preparing barely edible beans and rice for the rest of your life? Or would you rather receive a private chef who could cater to your every culinary craving from cultured cuisines? The answer is obvious, isn't it? (laughs) There's no comparison. Why would anyone choose to work for something that is far inferior than simply receive something that is so much greater? Beyond any earthly comparison, giving presents is, is fun, receiving presents is also fun, and usually the greater the gift, the greater the joy. And we've been given something that is so great, the greatest gift, haven't we? Don't we have the greatest joy because God has given us the greatest gift? He's given us Christ. We just read that God has given us the following blessings. He's given us faith of equal standing with the apostles. He's given us a multiplication of grace and peace. He's given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. He has provided a way for us to become partakers of the divine nature. He has richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in our text today, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-7, through 7, the question that we're aiming for to answer is, can we be sure that we have the apostolic faith? And in order to get there, I'll tell us where we're going. We'll cover what is the apostolic faith, and we'll be able to answer that question in two parts. One, who are the messengers? And secondly, what is the content of the message that they're bringing? Then we'll answer, what does the apostolic faith do? And then the main question, can we be sure that we have this apostolic faith? So before we jump in, it's always helpful to have some background or some context. So we'll do that. Familiarity with this context will help us understand what Peter means by what he's writing. And the apostle Peter wrote this letter to Christians. And although Peter doesn't explicitly tell us, it could be that he's writing to those who were dispersed because of the Roman persecution from Jerusalem. Because Peter is the author and mentions his impending death later in chapter 1, this puts the letter around the mid to late 60s AD. Early church tradition has it that Peter was martyred in Rome, and it could be that Peter is writing from Rome, but we can't be certain. Additionally, Uh, Later in this letter, Peter will be addressing false teachers, and that is a huge theme that will come later. Over the course of this letter, there is a clear distinction between the true apostolic faith and the false counterfeit faith, and we're just scratching the surface. Although this letter is the last of Peter's words, uh, when someone dies, usually they have an important point to make. They have a last will and testament. The last words of someone are often their plea for others to remember something important. Perhaps you remember the last words of someone that has died recently. Even with this sermon, any sermon, any talk, the conclusion or the last words are often where things are pulled together. And the same is true from the letters written by the apostles. It's helpful to make a distinction also between Peter's letters and Paul's letters, just briefly, and that's because Uh, We use a clear law and gospel distinction. Hopefully you've heard that here. 
And Peter intermixes it much more frequently than Paul does. Paul has very long sections of law and gospel. Uh, Peter, our, our first four verses here will be gospel. And then the second three will be law. So keep that in mind as we move forward. So beginning in verses 1 and 2, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And here is where we address what is apostolic faith. And in the first part, we're going to take a look at the messengers. Peter states that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, servant in our English Bibles is actually the word for slave. All right? Slavery in the first and second century did look much different than more uh, recent. It was not like the oppression that we find in recent history. And that's why, really, most translations committees choose the words bondservant or servant. Uh, they helps us to think of, uh, you know, not the oppression of more recent years. But to every slave, there was a master. To every doulos, which is the, the Greek word, there was a kurios, there was a lord. So by doing this, Peter is actually identifying himself as a slave to his lord. His lord is Christ. Christ is his master. He's saying, Jesus is my lord. God is my ruler. And we may not use the same word as Peter here, but we do recite a similar sentiment, don't we? Heidelberg question one, we answer that I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. So if Jesus Christ has purchased us, that means we're his possession. He owns us. We are truly slaves to Christ in the best way possible. I think it's interesting to note here, but in the original text, in the, in the Greek here, the first three words are Simon, Peter, slave. It's an important thing. And this truth might need to sink in for some of us. Do you struggle with people-pleasing or identity? If so, you need this truth to remind you and me that the opinion that matters is the one that never changes. It's Christ's. He paid an eternal punishment for your soul. If you struggle with covetousness, let this truth remind you that you deserve none of this to start with. And yet Christ freely gives it lavishly to you. Let his generosity fuel our gratitude. Then Peter uses the word apostle. And you may already be familiar with this word as one that we've used before in the Apostles' Creed. Certainly we're familiar with that. But as we're moving on in this text, it's actually pretty crucial that we have a clear understanding of what the word apostle means. And it really means sent one. In other words, uh, in other uses of the same word around the same time, it could have been ambassador or one who was dispatched. You see the connection? The apostle was never disconnected from the one they were sent. So by definition, the apostle is connected to someone with greater authority. Kids, let's think of it this way. So if you tell your younger sister to clean up your room, 
The chances of them doing that aren't very good, are they? But perhaps you'll get a different response if you say, all right, Johnny, Mommy said it's time to clean up your room. Maybe they'll do it that time. Maybe the older sibling will you know, have a chance to help the younger sibling there. Or, like it is in our house, the younger sibling will tell the older sibling what to do. So. And it's because the older sibling used the authority that they were given from their mother to tell their sibling to clean up the room. And we can see this authority being given elsewhere in the New Testament to help us understand the word apostle. So in Acts 1, 21 and 22, I'll just read it for us here. So one of the men who have accompanied us along the time, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And Jesus came, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he delegates it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the Holy Spirit, teaching them, that would be us now, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. And then in John's gospel, chapter 20, we read, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. You see that delegation again? And when he had read this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Do you see the power that Jesus gave to his apostles there? He had truly given them the keys to the kingdom. They could proclaim the gospel and people would receive faith. They could admonish the church and show great discipline because of the authority of Christ. And we see throughout Acts, the apostles were given a special status among Christians because they were eyewitnesses. They were ambassadors. They were the direct disciples of Christ. The gift of apostleship was given to the church immediately following Christ's ascent ascension for the establishment of the church through the gospel ministry of christ himself he delegated his apostles to plant churches throughout all jerusalem and all judea and samaria and the farthest parts of the earth when the apostle john died late in the first century there were no more apostles the apostle peter is declaring this truth to the surrounding christians of the first century and Peter's apostolic authority was from Christ himself. If we were to deny what the apostles had taught, we would be denying what Christ had delegated, what Christ himself had taught. Conversely, if someone is claiming to be an apostle like this, they are rejecting Christ's authority. And this is why Peter mentions he is an apostle, because he was given that authority by Christ. As we discuss what apostolic faith is, we answered who the messengers are, and now we'll turn our attention to the content of the message. Peter addresses those who have received faith by Christ's righteousness. Having told his audience who is writing, slave and apostle of Christ, 
Peter then defines his recipients. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we need to pause here. Because if you're like me, you might get tripped up by that word obtained. Okay? We often have this context of striving for or working or competing or earning. But this is not the context in which Peter is writing. Uh, For this purpose, I think the NASB has it translated more helpfully to us. It says, to those who have received a faith of equal standing. I think that sits well with us. We are receiving the teaching. We are receiving faith from God. And this is truly the sense of that word in this sentence. We receive faith. We don't work ourselves up to belief. We don't get to try really, really hard and earn our salvation. And this is what Peter is affirming here. Look at that last part. Because it's by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. The word by could also be through. Giving the sense of the means through which, or the means by which we are given righteousness. Is there any other means through which we are righteous? Of course not. Christ is our righteousness. So in a sense, yes, we are obtaining it because we're taking possession of it and we're making it our own, but only because God gives it to us. That's the distinction. Also, we're receiving faith in the sense that we're believing the apostles' teaching. Christ has taught his apostles throughout all of his gospel ministry. Certainly there were others around, but Christ was really preaching to them. In Matthew 28, he said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what we see in the gospel is repeated. Christ is directly talking to his apostles. Helping them understand how he's fulfilling God's law. Remember when we were in Matthew just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and uh, we heard Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus was helping them think through the Jewish scriptures that they had probably memorized, but rightly interpret it in relation to the Savior, the Messiah. We recite things from the Apostles' Creed from time to time. The Apostles' Creed helps us because it's a summary of truths that come directly from scripture. We're reminded in the Apostles' Creed discussing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's important for the hearers of Peter's letter That they know that faith is not second class. Because during the time of Peter's writing, there were Christians who were claiming to have secret knowledge. You might have heard the word Gnostics. Comes from the Greek word for gnosis. Just means knowledge. And Peter here is making a simple and yet very profound truth. That there is one faith given by God. God is so good to us to give us this text, dear ones. Because just as Peter was writing this nearly 2,000 years ago to Christians of his day, we can apply this to our day. There are people who claim to know Christ, who claim to have special knowledge or a special relationship with God. That their relationship with God is somehow different or other than the rest of us. And if this wasn't the case, then there wouldn't be books like Jesus Calling. There is truly nothing new under the sun, folks. 
Peter addressed this heresy nearly 2,000 years ago. And when you have true faith in Christ, your faith is truly of equal standing with the apostles. You do not need extra special revelations. You do not need super spiritual times of stillness. You have the same faith as his 12 apostles. Take comfort in that. And in this case, Peter's summary here, if it's not as clear as it needs to be for you, let's look at the Heidelberg Catechism because it summarizes this truth for us in question 21 when we ask, what is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept, all, I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. And this faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Only for the sake of Christ's merits. And what does Peter say in verse 1? Something very similar. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection? God opened the apostles' eyes to see Christ for who he really was. In our learning through Matthew so far, Peter didn't do anything astonishing to make him earn righteousness. Quite the opposite. The apostles trusted Christ because God opened their eyes, their spiritual eyes. And in the same way, you and I trust in Christ because faith comes to us only by the earned righteousness of Christ. Our faith comes to us only because of the earned righteousness of Christ. And in this way, our faith is truly of equal standing with the apostles. This is the message, because this is the gospel. Look with me at verse 2 as we further develop the content of this message. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Peter's blessings of grace and peace, they were a common blessing given during that time when usually when entering someone's home. Still in, in that culture, uh, they use the word shalom a lot, and we'll talk about that later. But this is a, a, a simple convention that people use during that time. But P Peter wrote this in his letter, and so let's not take it for granted. Peter could have chosen different words, but he didn't. He chose grace and peace. And grace has the sense of goodwill, or favor, or generous giving. And peace is actually a loaded term. It comes from the word for peace that we find in the Old Testament. And I mentioned it briefly, the word shalom. I'm not going to give you a Hebrew lesson, but the word shalom has a sense of completeness or wholeness or equilibrium, tranquility. Now, yes, peace can fit into that, uh, but the word for peace is so much bigger than how we might understand peace. And in fact, if we trace the theme of peace throughout the Bible, or the word shalom, what we'll see is that God created things in shalom in the beginning. And throughout the whole theme of the Bible, we see him coming to that final restoration of shalom, when we will be with him face to face, and he's going to make all things new. There's a, a sense in which, as a disciple of Christ, we get to experience that grace and shalom here and now. And yet, we will not experience it fully until he comes. 
So we have discovered what the apostolic faith is, and we answered that question in two parts, who are the messengers and what is the message? So let's answer, what does the apostolic faith do? And Peter tells us what this faith does. Look, at, look with me at verses three and four. His divine nature has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now picture with me, let's say I have my friend up here, Jim. And Jim says, I need you to give me $10,000, but I promise to pay you back. Well, you would have a lot of questions about Jim, wouldn't you? First of all, who's Jim? How do we know who he is? How can I trust him? What kind of person is he? Well, we need to know Jim before we can trust him, right? You're not just going to give Jim $10,000. This simple illustration help us under, helps us to understand a few things about what Peter's saying. Peter says, his divine nature, being God's, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the all things to which Peter is referring to starts with knowing God. Do you see that? Through the knowledge of him. We have to know God before we can do anything else. Do you remember what our helpful Heidelberg says about true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. True faith starts with knowledge, but that's not all that it is. In our example, we have to know Jim if we're going to trust what he says about paying us back that $10,000. Much more so, we have to know who God is if we're going to trust what he says. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan reminded us of the lawgiver and how we need to know him in order to understand his law, referring to the Ten Commandments. And that preamble kept sticking out, didn't it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. We know God by knowing his word. And Peter goes on to say that through knowing God, we can know that he has granted to us precious and very great promises. He has promised us many things, not the least of which is himself, his Holy Spirit, giving us new hearts, forgiveness of sin, Christ's righteousness, discipline and correction, otherwise known as sanctification, also, he gives us eternal life. These great things are ours only when we know God. We cannot have these things without knowing God. Our faith is truly sufficient because our God is sufficient. He needs nothing and no one, and when he gives faith to those he chooses, it does not lack. In this way, our faith is sufficient. Our faith suffices. And this is the first part of our answer. Our faith suffices. Why does God give us all things? To what purpose? To what end? Peter mentions two reasons. To become partakers 
of the divine nature to escape sinful corruption. Let me reverse that for us. To escape sinful corruption, to put on the divine nature. To put off and to put on. What Peter is saying here to the first century Christians is the same thing that God, Yahweh, told the Israelites thousands of years ago on Mount Sinai, wasn't it? And this is the same thing that reformers like your sinus mentioned in reliable catechisms for us. Put off sin, put on Christ. So secondly, our faith furnishes. This will be our next point. And this is the law section that we get into in response to the gospel that we just heard. So is our new nature incomplete? Absolutely not. It is robust. Our faith is sufficient. Perhaps you remember the castle that I mentioned in the beginning. Well, it wasn't just a a shell. It was fit for a king. It could withstand and protect against modern warfare. Our faith suffices. How can we tell that our faith is sufficient? How can we tell that we have true faith? How can we tell that we have apostolic faith? Let's look at verses 5 through 7. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. At first, it might seem like the word supplement would imply that something is lacking. But the idea that Peter's describing here is furnishing faith, robust faith. If you've ever rented an apartment, perhaps you had the opportunity to rent one that was unfurnished or furnished. You have to pay rent for both because both provide you a place to live. And so the furnished apartment comes with some comforts that come along with having furnishings like a, a bed and a nightstand, a kitchen table, maybe a microwave, etc. You get the point. And this is the sense of Peter's word to supplement. This is the same idea that we see across scripture. And in James, when he says that faith without works is dead, this is the same thing. The faith in Christ alone saves. Faith in Christ alone saves. But the saving faith that we receive through God is never alone. It's furnished, fully furnished. When God pours his love into us, It overflows in every part of our lives. We can do nothing else but to love him back and to love one another. In scripture, this is the litmus test for having faith, to test and see if we have faith. Do you care about the things of the Lord? Do you have his love? Has he given you a new heart? If so, then these things will be showing themselves. It might take some time, but they will. And if these things are not showing up in, yourself, in, your, in your life, then perhaps if you've never trusted Christ, you have not been changed by him. But for you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, for you, dear saints, this is a great comfort. Because if you're concerned about the change and the, the evidence or lack of evidence of fruit in your life, then there's a really good chance that your heart is already changed because the unchanged heart doesn't care, all right? An unchanged heart does not care about the lack of fruit in their life. Only the changed heart will care about this because our faith 
is furnished, God will supply these good works for us to do. He gives us the faith that will fuel our good works. And in this way, we can be sure that we have apostolic faith because we are producing fruit. Our sufficient, furnishing faith will produce fruit. We answered, what is the apostolic faith? Who are the messengers? What is the content of the message? And then we answered, what does apostolic faith do? Suffice and furnish? And all this should have helped us see clearly that we can be sure that we have apostolic faith because we will produce fruit. And so our response in hearing all of this should lift our spirits to God. It should turn our eyes to Christ. At the same time, it should get us thinking a little bit, right? We would do well to consider these things. Ask someone close to you if they're seeing fruit in your life. And when they answer positively, what a great affirmation that you have true faith. Are you seeing them trust Christ more? Consider these questions as you, as you talk with one another. Are you seeing the person you're talking to trust Christ more? Are you seeing them care more about the things of God? Are you seeing them care more about his word? About his church? And those being asked, remember that uh, growth is slow. Sometimes it's hard to notice. So let's be gracious with one another. And together, we can ask God to cause more growth in each of us as we're having these conversations. Husbands, this would be a fantastic way to show love to your wife. To take her hand and to tenderly care for her and tell her how the Spirit is at work in her life. What a great gift. And wives, this would be a beautiful way to show honor to your husband by pointing out where the Lord is at work where you've seen God grow your husband over this past year. And kids, think about how God has grown you over this past year. And if you're having trouble, perhaps ask your parents to help you. Friends, this would be a great encouragement to your friendship to point out the fruit that you see in your friend's life. What better gift to give to one another? Your brothers and sisters, let's inspect our faith that we have, and the fruit that we see. And I also want to encourage you, as elders, we want to continue to encourage you to meditate on the Apostles' Creed, to think through these things. Uh, that's why we recited it this morning, you know, recited some, some things that were related to it this morning. Those questions and answers come uh, very similarly from the Apostles' Creed, which comes right out of Scripture. Work towards memorizing the Apostles' Creed because it's gospel. It is what we believe and it is very helpfully summarized for us in a memorizable way. Let's consider what great news, what gospel the Apostles' Creed is to our hearts and minds. That we can know that we have the true gospel. And let us love well, because that apostolic faith is truly ours. And we can be certain that God will complete the good work that he has started in us.